It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Harman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Harman Institute North America. We're recording this week's episode on Tuesday, May 26th. And this week is our special Shavuot episode as we, the Jewish people, collectively uh, prepare for the experience of receiving the Torah some several thousand years ago, but something that actually happens every year. Um, so we're going to do that again in a couple of days, um, perhaps more from the privacy of our own homes than at any other time in Jewish history. Uh, and to talk to me about this, about Torah study, about the audacious attempt to put all of Torah on the internet, I'm joined by this week by a special guest, a good friend of mine, Josh Four. Uh, Josh Four, for those of you who don't know, um, is kind of like the Jewish community's equivalent of that guy from the beer commercial, the most interesting man in the world. Josh is a acclaimed author of a book called uh, Moonwalking with Einstein, which, uh, among other things, chronicled his journey to becoming the USA memory champion. He's also one of the founders of Atlas Obscura. He is uh, he has a book promised <laughs> on uh, some time spent <laughs> with the last uh, surviving uh, tribe of uh, hunters and gatherers in the world. And perhaps most important for the purpose of our discussion, he's one of the co-founders of Safaria, uh, this ambitious attempt to put Torah on the internet. Josh, it's great to see you. Um, thanks for being here. And it's great to see you too. To kick us off, just tell us something great that you've been reading or watching when in your obviously very spare time when you're not homeschooling your children at home during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, in all seriousness, the thing that I have been watching uh, the most recently intersects with homeschooling, which is uh, a channel on YouTube called Numberphile that is uh, all of these like PhDs in math explaining really complicated mathematical topics like for kids. Um, it's amazing. I highly recommend it. That would be great for me because I, I don't know very much about math or science, but I only know math or science for the purposes of being able to make metaphors in the humanities. <laughs> so that would be useful. And this is so filled with that. That's like the cutting edge of math is where you really find your, your, your sermon uh, material, I think. So, uh, so for our listeners, Josh and I know each other because uh, 20 years ago, Josh, 19, summer 1999, I believe, yeah. uh, Josh was a Bronfman Youth Fellow, and, um, and I had the joy of being his counselor that summer. It's hard for me to think about when over that summer this happened, but uh, also on that summer was Brett Lockspizer, who was uh, one of your co-founders of Safaria. And I've, I've always been curious about, did that conversation about Safaria originate in that Hartman summer? And kind of where did that come from in, this, uh, in your own journey? Uh, you know, what's funny is Brett and I were friendly on that trip, but we weren't like super close. I don't think we ever talked about anything that was a uh, predecessor to Safaria. In fact, we lost touch for 10 years. But it's the power of that Bronfman network, I guess, that like I had heard that he had recently left a job at Google. And I just had this like, notion that he might be thinking about something similar to this. And I called him out of the blue. 
And it's like one of these phone calls where we were both thinking the exact same thought at the exact same time. And it was almost magical that we came out of that phone call and we're like, you know what? Somebody should do this. And then I was like, wait a minute, maybe we should do this. So what do you mean by this? When you, when you try to come to the kernel of, I, I assume that you did not, you didn't, imagine at the time all of what Safaria would become, um, but there's some this, some some kernel or some essence of that project, and what is that for you? Um, well, so it started with, let's solve a problem, which is, uh, why is it that in, this must have been 2010, why is it that in 2010, if I Google the Talmud in English, I get, as my top three search results, um, like, some PDFs of the Sonsino translation, which it turns out are actually still under copyright, so they're pirated. I get like this partial 1918 uh, translation that's unreadable and an anti-Semitic website. And like, how could that be the case? In like, this is where people live. This is, I mean, this was not 1996. This was 2010. And so we we're like, we gotta fix that. But in the process of thinking that through, and I think actually from the, the, the this was embedded in the germ of the idea was there's an incredible opportunity to help these texts transition from the age of print into the digital age. And that if we did it in the right spirit and in the right way, it could be a really important thing for how these texts live in the future. And we didn't quite trust that it would happen in the right way if we didn't get involved and in, 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 in try and do this ourselves. So I'm a little bit mad that you waited to 2010 because I finished my doctorate in 2009 and it would have been way more helpful. And I think I drove a, like a majority of the traffic to the anti-Semitic site because actually it's pretty good <laughs> in terms of like the availability of Talmud during that time. Um, but what was at stake for you? Like why, why of all of the various intellectual hobbies and pursuits that you might have been pursuing, like why this of all things? You're not, you're not a professional Talmudist. Um, not even close. Right. Yeah. Um, and it I'm a professional Amharitz is what I am. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. And it hasn't, but it also hasn't made you a professional Talmudist. So like what's the, I understand the problem that it's solving, like for the Jewish people, we should have the Talmud on the internet. But like, obviously to get involved with a project like this, something else is kind of burning that's motivating your, your desire to make it happen. Yeah. And I think that probably goes back to that summer. Like that summer in Israel, you, me and Brett, that was the first time I ever looked at a page of Talmud in my life. And I, as a grown-up, I think, came to really uh, appreciate the ways in which my education, which had in every possible way been like, the, like, I got the best education you can get in this country from a secular perspective. And yet, like, how is it possible that I am finding myself at age 20-whatever pretty much illiterate? in our own culture, in Jewish textual culture. I mean, like, I went to Hebrew school, and I come from a family of people who were really engaged with the Jewish world, and yet, even still, I didn't look at a page of Talmud until I was on that summer program with you in Israel. And I think that I felt a sense of having been deprived of something, and a desire, first of all, to create for myself, and I think Brett felt the same way, a tool that would allow us to access our tradition. Because actually, if you were sitting in, in my shoes at that time, and you want like, what is this thing, the Talmud? Like, I've read some of it. It's really interesting. I want to know more about this. Like, what are your options? Like, geez, I'm going to go online to, you know, the Eichler's website and order the $2,600 uh, art scroll thing. Like, by the way, I don't even have enough shelf space for it. 
Like, what are my options? You know? So I wanted to solve that problem for myself personally. But I also feel like this is a collective problem that we have as American Jews, that we are as literate as we could possibly be. We are the most literate culture in the history of the earth, probably. American Jews, I mean, I've heard a number that we buy 40% of all hardcover trade books. That can't possibly be true. But like, like, I kind of think maybe it could be true, right? And yet so many of us don't have access to like this great tradition that's been going for 3,000 plus years. And I kind of wanted to have a hand in helping to change that. And so that's actually the real, I'd say, bigger mission of Safaria, not just making these texts available. That's actually only the first step towards making them truly accessible, which is actually only the first step towards what I would say is the real ambition of Safaria, which is reimagining textual learning and Torah as a central activity of American Judaism, which like you can, that's a long way to go from where we are here today to that vision. But I think you need a tool like Safaria in order to get there. Daniel Septimus, the uh, the executive director of Safaria, has told me this directly, and I, I'm sh- I think he'll he'll share this as well tomorrow. Uh, we at Hartman are doing a webinar hosted by my colleague Rabbi Josh Layden, with Daniel Septimus, with uh, Dr. Miriam Heller Stern, and with Lisa Colton. The revelation will be digitized around the whole question of Torah right now, the ways that it's shaping what we learn and how we learn and beyond what we learn, like what is Judaism right now? And Daniel has has said to me uh, separately something echoing what you're saying, which is Safaria is not about building a tool. It's actually revolutionizing and democratizing the study of Torah, that the goal is uh, is Torah study. It's not merely making this tool available. And it's striking to me, Josh, that um, that it's, it might be precisely because you didn't come out of the world of professional Torah learners or teachers that that might even be a desired activity. I, I kind of wonder whether it's the it's almost the closed nature, the elitism that has been baked into Torah and Talmud study for a long time that would actually be an obstacle for someone coming out of that training to say, oh, I want to make this available to people. Because there, whenever you talk about the democratization of knowledge, there are those who suffer and the people who will suffer will, will necessarily be the elites. So I'm curious what you make of that of that dynamic. I also just wonder at the same time has that has that happened yet? My suspicion is that the people who most use Safaria are the people who are already in the business, for whom it's now like, great, this is easier than pulling the text off the shelf and scanning it. Um, but how does it actually lead towards people who are not in this business professionally saying, you know, oh, now this is available to me? I anticipated that we would have more pushback than we've had from the people who stand to lose from the democratization of Torah. I think that we, this is like super inside baseball, but I know that's a term you like to use. So uh, I feel very comfortable bringing it out with you. I mean, like when we were like, our strategy from the beginning was you build the tool for the insiders, right? Like you start there, like for the guy who's writing his PhD, that is music to our ears to hear like, oh, I, I couldn't do this before Safari existed, right? So you build it for that, for that audience, and then you get the buy, and you get the buy-in from that audience, which then allows you to to start to spread your wings a little bit wider. So there was a kind of in the in the in the in the grand strategy of unrolling Safari. I think that was we always said first you go after rabbis and educators and make the tools that work for them. That's why the first thing we built was a source sheet builder, something that was like actually you wouldn't necessarily say was essential to the vision of making Torah available. But it was a way to 
create something that was very useful immediately for educators and rabbis. And and do you do you anticipate I would say that the average learner will be able to to gain access to this tradition on their own through the availability of this knowledge or does it still require the gatekeepers of the source sheet makers. I mean, Dafyomi is this interesting story in and of itself, but even there, that is a that is a system with gatekeepers because people are yeah. there to teach and guide. So I think the I mean I think the answer is it's a necessary condition, but not a um, sufficient because you still need like, and this is something Daniel and I uh, talk about, go back and forth about all the time, and and, and Brett as well. Torah is not actually a person and a text. It's a person and another person or a person and a group of people mediated by a text. And right now, Safaria is primarily creating a means for a person to engage with the text on a screen. And I think that is not actually a great on-ramp for people who have not, who don't know what they're looking at. And the best on-ramp is another person. And the next stage of Safaria is going to be about figuring out how to empower that kind of Torah, interpersonal and relational, yeah, and mediated, but mediated by the text. And that, I think, is the great opportunity and the thing that, like, has not really penetrated the wider American Jewish world. Like, people don't, like, people don't, people don't know that that's something that happens or that's something they could do or that that's something that would be interesting or additive to their life. And I think that that, that's a great opportunity. Yeah. I mean, there is also, there are more obstacles than just knowledge and access. There's also anxieties about one's own authenticity to be an independent and autonomous reader. There are all sorts of people's baggage and obstacles from their own learning. I, I don't know if I've uh, shared this with you before, but I years ago, before I came to Hartman, I was teaching at Brandeis, and uh, I had a class that was designed for for educators who were going to go work in Jewish day schools. But they it was they actually weren't going to become Jewish educators. They were going to go be math teachers and English teachers, but they were going to go work specifically in Jewish day schools. So the cl- like the program was like, how do you have how do you get enough fluency to be able to be conversant with the discourse of the school, even though you don't have to teach it yourself. And um, at one point I was teaching, I was basically teaching like an intro to Talmud. Originally, it had been an intro to Bible class. I was like, I can't teach Bible, I'll teach Talmud. And actually, it's more interesting because, you know, non-Jews have the Bible also. But like the Talmud, that's kind of where it's at. That's much more esoteric and weird. And I had this um, enormous pushback, like real resistance in the first couple of sessions. And I was like, I don't know what's going on here. And then finally, one of my students erupted and she just kind of started screaming and she was like, this it never made sense to me. I hated it when I was in Hebrew school. And it's obscure and it's mean and, it's, and, I, and I don't get it. And who cares about this debate? And I was like, wow, this is amazing. So I just kind of paused the class. And I was like, who else here has baggage with the Talmud? And like all these hands go up because there's, some of them are Jewish, some of them are not Jewish. And we spent like two hours doing kind of a therapy session on the bad ways in which they had encountered the rabbinic tradition before. Um, and then it was a great class because they were like, okay, it doesn't have to be that. So those are the obstacles also for this learning. It's not just it's available to me. It's also it's associated. I mean, it's an anti – rabbinism is like an anti-Semitic adjective. Right? Right. It's associated it's, with yeah, a way of seeing a, the world. It is it – is, Talmudic means like esoteric and like and and boring, but like interestingly, for the other ninety five percent of American Jews, like they know the adjective Talmudic, but they don't actually know anything of the the text. And it's like nobody has tried 
I'm, I shouldn't say that. That's how, you, you know that I'm hyper. I'm a, a, a perpetually hyperbolic person when I talk about things. So you can, you would know to discount this. But um, yeah, like we, we haven't collectively really tried to, um, you know, really tried to put text at the center of Jewish experience. I'm curious, Josh. Um, when I was thinking about like the various projects that you've been engaged with and involved with, and they, I'm sure that they, I'm sure that they're on a straight line in your head, but they. They kind of seem like a little different. You know, you have Atlas Obscura, which uh, which is a big popular book in our house, uh, of like finding the most random, strange, weird, amazing parts on planet Earth and putting them all in one place and and actually encouraging people to go look at them, right? Giving them longitude and latitudinal uh, signs to go find them. I feel like that's on one side. And then on the other side is becoming a memory champion, learning that mm-hmm. industry, and and more than that, actually becoming a philosopher of memory. In your TED Talk on this, you pull out um, aspects of the book that are about like who we become as people when we actually are people of stronger memory. And I, I kind of see Safaria at the middle of that Venn diagram, and I don't know whether it is more in the realm of like the collection of the arcane or the mastery of a particular field of knowledge. So I'm curious, like, What's when? What's what draws you to the Talmud? Is this about remembering and mastering something, or is it about this kind of journey to the obscure? And if you if you don't buy the whole framework, I, I, I don't put it on that on on on, on the, those axes. I think, um, but I like it. <laughs> I like that you gave such deep thought to to, to you know the whole uh, the whole CV. <laughs> no, I think that what ties it all together is a sense of curiosity and of about curiosity about the things that one has inherited actually like about memory about Judaism about I mean the world around us and a I feel a kind of compulsion to evangelize curiosity and encourage it and I would say actually all three of those projects and I might even add Sukkah City to this as well or about like pushing my own curiosity, but using my own curiosity as a proxy or imagining that it might be a proxy for other people's curiosity. Do you remember, I'm going to put you on the spot here, do you remember any of the Talmud that you felt you learned on Bronfen? Um, You're not in trouble if you don't. I just have a reason I mean, why I ask it. I remember I remember we opened up Pure Kea Vote on the first day. I guess that's not Talmud per se, uh, but close enough. It counts. Right? Yeah, it counts. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I'm asking. It's not. I'm not. Yeah. You're not here for a Talmud test. Um, you know, I've thought a lot also about memory, but in a very different way than you've thought about memory. Uh, your right. the memory that you were uh, studying and mastering was the was the, was the ability of the human mind to kind of create the elasticity to hold on to much more information than it thinks that it can, and then and then and and then you've. You help to explain all of the technologies by which we can do that, including these palaces of the mind, uh, stories that we tell in order to to hold on this information. And I've thought more about memory from the perspective of how useful it is that we can selectively forget and how important it is morally for us to be able to selectively remember, which is kind of the opposite. You know, I actually don't want to hold on to all of this stuff. And I, to me, part of what it's not that I find Safaria scary on the on the level of like this is a much better way to have a library. Agreed, um, m- more accessible. But in the theory that we can hold on to the, a little bit more, I don't know. I use the language of uh, Ben Bagbag says, "Turn it over, turn it over, for everything is in it." Right? Keep going. You keep going back and studying the same sections over and over again, not because you're actually trying to memorize them, but because you're trying to. I don't know. 
it's not about the text. It's about you. It's about this journey of formation of the individual. So I don't know. Maybe you could just m- meditate yeah. with me on this. On what are we trying to remember and what are we trying to forget? Well, first of all, you've touched on one of my central anxieties about Safaria, which is that as we move from being a people of the book to a people of the digital book, you know, yes, democratization, I, I believe, is fundamentally a, a good thing in this case. But we already know from all the other experiences we've had of learning on screens, uh, and especially over this last couple months, that like screen learning is is shallow and it it pushes you towards shallowness and breadth over depth, shallow breadth over depth. And that is absolutely rumbling around in the minds. I mean, it's it's fortunate that the team at Safari is a team of, I would say, techno-skeptics in so many ways. Like everybody top to bottom who are pushing this technological project uh, has a kind of like, but like we don't actually really love technology. And so how do we do this in a way that is responsible and preserves the best of this without and, and moves it into this new medium without undermining what's great about it. Yeah, no, I understand the skepticism. Let me probe a little bit more on memory, yeah. which is like, you know, I've taught the same piece of Talmud now, I don't know, 50 times, uh, the story of the rabbis going into the orchard. I wrote a chapter of it in my book on memory about how I find it to be a metaphor for the Enlightenment. I was mad at myself afterwards that I wrote it as a chapter because then I felt like I it was like that's what I had to say about it. And now when I read that text, it looks like something totally different. In fact, one time I even got like recordings of my own teaching of it because I was like, this will come in handy the next time I teach. And I've never once obviously been able to listen to it. I don't know. There's something just about Torah for me that's not about the acquisition and accumulation of knowledge, um, right. the kind of stuff that you hope you never forget. But it's actually like r- the real stuff of loving Torah is the ability to encounter a text you've actually seen before to kind of forget what it's all yeah. about and then to find something different. Because it's not a, ultimately it's not about the text. It's actually about the, the searcher in the text or the journeyer. Yeah. So what, so what is that? What does that point towards then? I don't know. I, I just don't know what that means for... I guess I don't know what it means for these technologies. That's what I'm kind of getting at. Like the, what does it mean for a teacher and a learner to be engaged with that constant pursuit? That's all. I don't know that I have a question as much as I'm, I'm just struggling with this a little bit. Yeah, no, I, th- I, I, I think there is like having everything at your fingertips is absolutely amazing in so many ways. And there are costs to it as well. And the costs are, of course, like harder to quantify. They're not tangible. I would say one of the, I mean, this is a conversation you and I had once upon a time about the Oven of Achnai, that how, like, that was a text that, like, sort of entered circulation at some point through through Hartman, actually, right? Hartman. That's, I think David Hartman was one of the people who brought that text to where it is now, yeah. And now it's like a text that is in wide circulation. Everybody, like even, it's one of the first texts people encounter when they're sort of encountering the Talmud for the first time. I suspect that we will find that like that canon of like greatest hits is going to evolve over time and that Safari will have some role in that. So I don't know if this is confidential or uh, it's not anymore. We're working on getting a translation of the Yushalmi up on Safaria. And when that happens, like, I think the Yerushalmi will become, just by virtue of being unavailable, it is less talked about. 
And I have a feeling certain there will be stories that will enter the sort of the conversation just because it's being made more available. Yeah, and I, I think that probably is good, although having spent a lot of time with Yerushalmi, I would say maybe yes, maybe no. Um, yeah, I think it's just, it's. Um, there's no question that that accessibility changes what of Torah is taught and learned. I remember before there was Safaria, there was the Bar-Ilan CD-ROM, and, um, where like you could get for, I think it was like, um, access to the canon. And there was always kind of a running joke among teachers of Torah that like you could tell somebody's source sheet from that they had just basically entered in a search term to the Bar-Ilan CD-ROM because then it showed you like, oh, the source sheet is like every time that this phrase appears. And there was nothing particularly enlightening about it because in the end, it might be that the Babylonian Talmud's version of the story of Achnai is like the best version. And more, and more interesting and more human than what will inevitably happen, which is, uh, you know, many run-of-the-mill classes of, like, let's look at the difference between mm-hmm. the Yerushalmi uh, version of the story of Achnai and the Bavli story of the version of Achnai. So, I, again, I'm not, I don't want to be on the side of non-democratization of knowledge or non-accessibility. My read in this conversation is what drew you to this material was its magic. And that magic happens through curation more than happens through access. Correct. Yes. And I think the curation and the dialogical, interpersonal, relational Torah that's going to grow out of Safaria, like right now that's happening off of our platform. And hopefully there's more of it happening because of the existence of Safaria. But I think there's way more that we can do with Safaria to make more of that happen. Let me ask you a non-Safaria question for a second and go back to the memory business, which is a source to me of endless fascination. I don't know if you're still doing party tricks on the memory. (laughs) Jeez, thanks. Yes, I am still doing party tricks. Yeah, come on. You know know what I'm talking about. You know, pick up the deck of cards. I can't do the cards anymore. You can't do the deck of cards. Yeah, but But I can can remember your credit card number if you... uh, (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) Accidentally. Good to know. It's good for, like, remembering all these Zoom links. Um, Yes. Let me ask you a question just based on, on something I went back and, and read. Um, Paul Ricoeur writes in Memory and History and Forgetting. So the philosopher, French philosopher of memory, writes about the religious doctrine of memory is often tied up with ethical obligation and especially the pursuit of justice. We remember what happened to those who were persecuted in order to be able to live out um, some sense of justice. So I've been thinking about this since I, since I rewatched your TED Talk, which, I again, I'll recommend to folks and we'll link to it. It's just a beautiful... 18, 19 minutes. I mean, people should buy the book, but also watch the TED Talk, you know. <laughs> and you had your, your, your talk on memory was very eloquent and elegant in terms of what's possible for us as humans. But I'm curious for you to reflect on Recur's piece of this, which is what's, what else emerges for us morally on the basis of having strong memories? What are, what are the obligations that come to us uh, as a result of being able to hold on to the injustices committed to others or by others. You know, I'm just, I, I would love to add like a, the philosophy layer on top of your commitment to memory. Well, so you're talking about collective memory, which is more, more your cup of tea than mine, but I'll, I'll, I'll weigh in and, and then you can tell me why I'm right or wrong. I, we're, 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 we're still talking however many thousands of years later about Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, like all the time. Uh, we can't stop talking about it. And uh, we are, as a people, clearly obsessed with holding on to certain memories, precisely because they we, we, we get our ethics from them. We've decided that we're going to um, never forget certain things and make the 
Like, so I was learning, you know, uh, mnemonic tricks as an individual to like basically make information more memorable and more sticky. And we have collectively invented some pretty phenomenal uh, best in class <laughs> mnemonic tricks as Jews to make sure that we don't forget these some of these events and uh, and ritualized remembering in a way that almost nobody else has or not to, to or to a degree that nobody else has. For decades, Jewish leaders from across North America have traveled to Mechon Hartman in Israel to learn alongside inspiring faculty and meet old and new friends in the warmth of the Jerusalem summer. This year, we won't be able to gather in Jerusalem, but we can still gather. And this summer, we are opening the doors of our Bet Midrash and inviting everyone inside. All Together Now, Jewish Ideas for This Moment is a month-long virtual celebration of ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Join hundreds of Jewish leaders online between June 29th and July 23rd as over 50 of our scholars from Israel and North America address the moral and theological questions facing us in this moment. For more information and to register free of charge, go to bit.ly slash Hartman Summer. Do you have thoughts on where this, where, if leaving aside collective memory and going back to individual for a second, where the work of memorization and mnemonics lives for the individual and the work of education? I mean, you're now, you know, you have your own kids. They assume, yeah. they, we're, you know, there's a lot of debates in the field of education about whether people should be remembering things in Jewish education to, you know, I had to memorize like a, you know, Macbeth monologue that's gone. I'm curious where, where that sits for you in terms of your own, uh, your own views of education. So, and this actually probably maybe does come back to your, your earlier question. And it actually ties into Safari as well and what you're asking about there. Like, you could take the position that, we don't need to, like, why do we need to remember anything anymore? Um, why, we can look it all up in Google. Why would we, why would we bother? Um, and you could extend that to, to you know, Jewish texts. Now, you know, I've got Safari. Why do I need to really learn this text deeply or engage with it that deeply or engage with it that repetitively, as you said earlier? My feeling is, uh, like, our memories, that idea is based on a faulty metaphor of memory, which is that our memories are like banks that we deposit information into and take information out of when we need it. And that, that's just not true. Our memories are more like lenses, that they are implicated in our very perception of the world. And everything that I am looking at and making sense of at any moment is actually being made sense of through this network of all the memories that I've put into my mind over the 37 years that I've been alive. And... The downside to neglecting our memories is that we're actually neglecting that perceptual lens. And the genius of like Jewish pedagogy is that like all of these memories that we are so concerned with implanting into our children is we're implanting those memories into our children because not because they're memories, but because they are how they are going to make sense of the world. When Noah was three... Uh, he was in the backseat of the car. I was driving him home from daycare in Brookline. And he said to me from the backseat, Abba, who are the Jewish people? And I was like, amazing, great question. Can't can't believe I got to this already in, in child rearing. So I was like, oh, no, we're the Jewish people. And he burst into tears. And I pulled over the car. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled over the car and I said, what's, what's going on, Noah? And he goes, I don't want Paro to get me. 
And I was like, oh, man, that is like the success and failure of Jewish education all in one. Like it embedded in him some belong, some sense of belonging to collective memory. The story was his. Like that's your palace of memory. It's in. It's like it is. It's his story. So I, you know, I didn't do like a whole disentangling of history and memory and fact and narrative. I, I calmed him down. But I, it's kind of you know th- that's the dark side. the The nicer way to think about it is also um, apropos some of your metaphors. You see, for many great sages, the way that they talk about the books that they read is that they're with their friends. That's how Rabbi Soloveitchik talks about when reading Maimonides. He's like, I'm not reading it in a book. I'm talking to Maimonides. And there, I think that probably some of the pedagogy of memory is critical because you're not reacquainting yourself with an obscure idea that you haven't seen in a long time and cannot get a hold on. You're actually acclimating yourself for this being the language of friendship and the language mm-hmm. of meaning that's sourced in relationship to these these texts and ideas that came before you. I mean, there's nothing I love. Like, it's probably my favorite uh Jewish experience outside of uh, like sitting in a sukkah on every Shabbat when I open up the Tanakh and like re-encounter a story that I've read however many dozens of times and be like oh I didn't notice that before or like hmm that's interesting like that's something like I can see this now in a new way that I didn't see it in all of these previous times of reading it and if you think about how many texts in our life we engage with that deeply. Of course, there's nothing. There's no other text that we engage with that deeply. And it's a very old-fashioned way of reading because like, once upon a time, you couldn't have all these books on your bookshelves around you. You read a few books and you read them deeply. And we read a lot of books and we read them shallowly, except for what the Jewish way of engaging with text calls upon us to do, which is to go really deep and to repetitively and to find yourself anew in the text every time you read it. And, um, and so that's like, that's the big, beautiful idea that I feel like we still haven't quite communicated to the masses, uh, how to do this and how to find beauty in it and how to, um, to relate to another person through that experience. Yeah. I keep harassing my kids, my two boys that they're, they just keep reading the Harry Potter books over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and maybe I should just I just embrace it. They're doing to books what Jews do to books, which is yeah. I love it. I don't remember all of it. I want to hear it again. And I'm re-enchanted by it each time. Josh, it's always wonderful to talk to you. Last question, which is um, something that you're planning. You don't have to hold you to it. It's something you're planning on learning uh, this Shavuot. I actually, I don't have a plan. So hit me. This is a great opportunity for you to tell me, uh, send, send me to bed with a book in my hands. If you, if you don't have Jeffrey Rubinstein's rabbinic stories, I do have that. Take that book and, you know, and read one of them with your kids. They're the best stories. They're in English. They're accessible. Um, you know, I had not thought about doing that with, um, with my son. That's a great yeah. idea. I, I started doing this with, uh, with my kids a few years ago. Enough of the stories are like, there's, there's weirdness. They're like, you know, the kids like weird stories. And, yeah. and, and my kids intuited early on, like, oh, I like stories. And I like, I like stories that, where there's like strange things that I can jump in on and then, and then be commentators and interpreters. So, um, yeah. By the way, this is a project we should work on together. Uh, there is no good um, curriculum for like I'm a dad, I'm a parent. I want to I want to do Torah with my with my kids, age whatever through whatever. Like, 
what should I do? How should I do it? Like, show me, show me how this works. And like, what are the texts? And like, like bedtime reading, the, bedtime Torah, you know? It's a great, uh, it's a great project, and um, it's a great project. The corollary project to that is we got to convince the people at PJ Library that the best Jewish—it's not just the best Jewish stories that come out of the Hasidic world. That, that's thought of yeah. as like where Jews are, as like Eastern Europe, but actually like Talmud, which is kind of the OG Jewish book. Yep. That's where you started Safaria from. That's a that's yep. a place for for us to tell our children. Totally, um, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you being with me today, Josh. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening to our show. And special thanks to Josh Four uh, of Safaria for, for taking time this week. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David Svi Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by SoCalled. In addition to the podcast, recordings of Identity Crisis are streamed on Facebook through Jewish Live. Please check our Facebook page for details about future recording times, and please join us. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, Visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at identitycrisis.shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Hope to see you sooner than that at Sinai on the anniversary of getting the Torah. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy.